Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl Podcast. I am your host, Kristen. Today's education picks up right where we left off, and we've got a lot to cover today. Before we jump back in, though, support for the Paranorm Girl Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. You know, Thanksgiving is fast approaching and soon to follow Christmas. I have a lot to be grateful for this year. This holiday season, I am giving thanks to my friends at Manscaped. If you want to give your special guy something he's actually going to use, their Performance Package 4.0 is absolutely worth the money. Gift your man Manscaped this holiday season so his tree stands taller, if you know what I mean. Help him join the 7 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with 20% off plus free shipping with the code PNG by going to manscaped.com. Lee is loving my partnership with Manscaped because he is loving the products so much. He is what you might consider uh, someone who cares about his appearance, his personal hygiene. So this worked out well. When I tell you how excited he was, like his his eyeballs lit up when I pulled out the Crop Preserver and the Crop Reviver. These products are like the pumpkin pie and ice cream after Thanksgiving dinner. You can't live without them. The Crop Preserver Ball Deodorant and Crop Reviver Toner Spray. My boy's boys are living in turkey heaven with these new additions to his routine. Is that enough turkey references for you? And, like, I'm a curious lady. I put some of each on the back of my hands just to check it out. The signature scent they use is so sexy without being overtly in your face, you know? It's really nice. Like, I dig it. Lee loves it. And the crop preserver... Like, I, I know it's a below-the-waist deodorant, but my skin was so smooth and moisturized. And you know what? Lee reported the same. So, give your special man and you both something to be grateful for. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code PNG at manscaped.com. That's 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com with the code PNG at checkout. Get him the best gift of all from Manscaped. And now back to our story. Following the death of Pat Price, the director of the CIA publicly dismissed the validity of the program, and the agency stepped back from it, wanted no further public association with psychics or this work. Might have had something to do with getting railed for their participation previously in another program with mind control and LSD. Another time, folks. Another time. But this move is how so many different agencies became involved. The seat the CIA left open was filled by seemingly every other single branch of the intelligence community at one time or another. Why? Probably a couple of different reasons, but namely the same original fear about the Russians. There was a lot of information and disinformation being leaked from Russia about their own program, and nobody knew exactly what was good and what was bogus. But also because... Maybe SRI had something here, and maybe everybody else could see that, and so would provide funding in order to see this work continued. The DIA and the Department of Defense wanted in on the action. 
the DOD felt there was sufficient information coming out that the program should not be dropped and needed further investigation. After the release of the semi-palatense goings-on and some reports published by the CIA regarding their ongoing work to assess the organization's scope, potential intelligence value, and military significance of Soviet parapsychological research, nothing to see here, the Missile Intelligence Agency awarded a one-year contract in 77 to SRI specifically for research and development of remote viewing. Concurrently... Army Intelligence and Security Command, or INSCOM, established a project team in Fort Meade, Maryland, and implemented the Gondola Wish program in order to integrate the Soviet psychoenergetic intelligence collection threat into the all-source OPSEC support scenario. The Gondola Wish program was short-lived, and by 78, the Army concluded from that program that there was sufficient evidence to warrant the development of a program to explore intelligence collection via the use of psychoenergetics. The program implemented for this purpose was Project Grill Flame. Now, just to keep things straight here, because it took me embarrassingly too long for it to click, SRI where this all began, is on the West Coast. What would ultimately become Stargate is on the East Coast. SRI and this new branch off would continue to push forward together, working all things remote viewing. SRI would continue on with the sciencey stuff, the research, study, development, and those on the East Coast would ultimately, far sooner than they were expecting, become the operations side of things. Grill Flame's initial purpose was to use remote viewing as an intelligence collection method. They needed to recruit some remote viewers for this. Lots of troops in Fort Meade, Maryland were screened initially. It was tough filtering through, searching for people more inclined to be psychically gifted, but who also had security clearance. By the end, six lucky soldiers were selected for the program, one of which was Joe McMonagall, a.k.a. Remote Viewer 001. It started out as a three-year-long, three-stage process. Find and train viewers. Year two, have those trained viewers target our own facilities and collect intelligence on our own stuff. Year three, turn everything over to a third party to evaluate whether it was all real or nonsense. So, as I just said, they found the viewers they needed and training commenced. According to Joe McMonagall during an interview on the 1041 podcast, he says they had only been training for a few months when the nice and slow, thorough intentions of the Grill Flame project evaporated and they were pushed into their first actual operation. In November of 1979, our embassy in Tehran had been taken over and people had been taken hostage. They needed to gather as much information as they could about the situation and who was being held. So from what I gather, they brought Joe and a few others in, threw a couple hundred photos of people on a table, some of whom who actually worked at the embassy and some totally bogus, and told the viewers to sort them, identifying the ones they felt were being held hostage. Joe says that many of the pics they pulled were dead accurate. They then were able to remote view the facility and report back on the hostages and their conditions at the time. As a result of the success of this event, the Fort Meade crew became full-on operative rather than moving forward with any further study and research. The timeline on this might be a a bit mishy-moshy, though. This is what Joe says took place, and 
at this time. Although a report in the CIA archives points to the viewing and locating of a missing naval aircraft in September of 1979 as the Fort Meade crew's first operational mission, all of which, not to be confused with the successful remote viewing of a crashed Soviet bomber found in the Congo by a sensitive in the Air Force in March of 79. It gets a little confusing. But as a result of these successes, INSCOM was tasked with even more operational missions, which once again brought that halt to any preconceived plans of study and research. And by December of 79, Grill Flame was off and running as fully operational. That being the case, an independent investigative committee was formed to review their activities. This was called the Gale Committee. The Gale Committee issued their findings more along the lines of what earlier investigations had found. All looks good here. Please carry on. And so they did. In 1981, Russell Targ left the program and actually started his business, Delphi Associates, who did a bit of their own psychic practice and remote viewing, applying what Russell knew about remote viewing and its process and actually making some investors very happy with correct predictions of stock market silver prices for a short time. They talk about that a bit in Third Eye Spies. In mid-1982, a new process began with how they were training in coordinate remote viewing. Ingo Swan helped to develop this new process, which subdivided detection and decoding of the viewer's psychic impressions into distinct, achievable skill levels. So it really helped to define and break down this process and obviously make it much easier to teach. This would end up being the process used through the end of the program. Briefly, the six stages were an evolution starting from seeing a, a major gestalt, the big picture of the target site, followed by any sensory information like cold sensations or I smell oil, followed by dimensional or motion aspects such as scanning a panoramic view or rising above the location. The fourth stage included any quantitative aspect, such as five buildings clustered together as a facility. The fifth included any special qualitative aspect, such as there's automotive parts lying around, there's dirty rags hanging on hooks. And the final stage was any significant analytical aspect, which would be helpful in the final labeling of whatever the site is. Oh, it's a car manufacturing plant. So you see how it simplifies. In 1983, the DIA published their results of their three-year effort evaluating psychoenergetics. The key recommendations that resulted from this were supported by an independent science review panel. The results being, one, basic research in both remote viewing and remote action phenomena should be initiated, and two, applied intelligence applications research in remote viewing should be continued. So basically, all looks good here. Please carry on. It gets very confusing. I'm, I'm not going to bore you with the details, but during this time, there was a lot of funding switcheroos and different departments doing the do-si-do in these years, management changes and key players taking different positions. But the important thing to keep in mind is that this whole confusing dance was taking place in order to keep this program going with the funding that they needed and full steam ahead with remote viewing operations. Joe McMonigal retired from the Army in 1984, but would continue consulting for Stargate up until 1993. 
At his retirement, he earned a Legion of Merit for his previous 10 years of service. The Legion of Merit is the second highest honor you can receive for non-combat service. In 1985, Hal Putoff would leave and the program would be taken up by Ed May, who was its director for 10 years. In 91, most of the contracting for the program was transferred from SRI to Science Applications International Corporation, and it would take on and retain the name Stargate through until it finally shut down in 1995. I know, all of that, and Stargate was only the damn name of the project for four years, yo! Further successes from this 23-year-long program that I did not mention include Joe McMonagall pinpointing and describing a Russian submarine being constructed somewhere that nobody expected, hundreds of yards from the water inside of a building. Told people it was going to launch in 120 days. A skeptical senior CIA officer later saw the site 114 days later, confirmed by satellite images, to find that the Russians had just launched the largest submarine ever built in history, later saying that it had been a lucky guess on Joe's part. You know what? What is with the lucky guessing being these people's go-to explanation for things they can't understand? That's, that's, it's quite the guess. Ingo Swan predicted that a Chinese atom bomb was going to be tested three days before it was scheduled to go off. Fortunately, he also correctly predicted that the test was going to fail. Hella Hamid helped locate the lost temple of Alexandria, Egypt, placing a stake over where she thought it was, but a mere 12 inches from where it actually was and had been buried for thousands of years. Joe McMonagall sketched and described the thoughts and reactions of an American kidnap victim held by the Red Brigade in northern Italy and accurately predicted that Skylab would leave orbit and where its debris would hit Earth 11 months before it happened. 11 months before it happened. So that was right after he started remote viewing. How about Ingo Swan remote viewing himself to Jupiter and describing rings around it at a time that nobody thought there were, and nine months before Voyager would get up there and, holy crap, confirm with their eyeballs that there were, in fact, rings around Jupiter. You guys! <sighs> so, I have tried to include as much information as I possibly could without dragging this beast out for six weeks. I hope, with all I've thrown at you, you've gotten the sense that there might have actually been something to this. But you know what everyone remembers? Robert Gates, that's who. The director of the CIA in 1995 publicly declaring this program was all bogus, these were inflated statistics and erroneous data. This has never been useful to us in any form of intelligence. What were the words? No discernible benefit had been established. Then why did they use Joe McMonagall and others like him over the course of the remainder of the program on hundreds of missions utilizing their learned remote viewing skills? Why did oversight committee after committee after panel after independent investigation keep saying, all looks good here, carry on? Why did they continue to provide the funding? Joe said in an interview that they continued to fund the program year after year based on its successes, not its failures. And that speaks volumes as to why it was funded for over two decades. I'd have to agree. 
Why did they continue to approve the time it would take, even after the Cold War ended? Why? That, that, that's all I've got. That, that's my big question. Why? Doesn't make any sense. The only thing that does make sense, and this is not conspiracy theory here, it, it's, it's just logical. The only thing that does make sense is that they were getting real results and seeing a significant amount of proof that it was worth their money and resources to continue working on it. I want to include a direct passage from a CIA grill flame report supporting what Joe said about using this ability adjacent to other sources of collection or methodologies under the section entitled Known Elements in Remote Viewing. Remote viewing, through the use of geographical coordinates as designators, has in many cases provided meaningful descriptions of East Bloc military facilities designated as targets by the sponsor. Evaluation by appropriate intelligence community specialists indicates that a subject is able by this process to generate useful data corroborated by other intelligence data. As is generally true with human sources, the information is fragmentary and imperfect and is therefore best utilized in conjunction with these other resources. Nonetheless, the data generated by this process appear to exceed any reasonable bounds of chance correlation or acquisition by ordinary means and therefore constitute a potentially exploitable information source. So, why did it make sense that they would dismantle the program if there really was something going on? Well, much like the LSD Mancurian candidate debacle, they didn't want their reputation to be further tarnished. Because, much like your crazy Aunt Ollie that sees and talks to her ghost friends when she's alone in her room, true story by the way, everyone thinks you're nuts and nobody wants you in charge. Much like parapsychology struggles to get their studies funded and turned down time after time because it's faux science, it's flim-flammery. Because this stuff is just crazy, right? Nobody wants to be the first reliable public agency to admit this crazy stuff is real. It's all just too embarrassing, dudes. And maybe, most importantly, if it were to be admitted publicly that remote viewing had been real and could be achieved by anyone with enough time and effort, no state secret or classified document or top secret project code named file in some cabinet buried four stories underground would ever be safe again to the wandering foreign remote viewing eye. If you admit it's real, then others will realize it too. Seems like that information would be much more valuable kept on the down low. And let's not for a second delude ourselves into thinking it's not entirely possible that dissolving the program publicly meant they didn't continue the research privately with private funders. We did go a little conspiracy theory there, but it's entirely possible, is it not? Because it's the CIA, dudes. They literally contracted one of SRI's top psychics to psychically spy for them on the side. And then four months later, he was dead because CIA shenanigans. 
this episode is going to get me in some trouble, yo. You may have noticed that I entirely left Yuri Geller out of this episode. Yeah, I did do that. You also may have noticed I left some code names out. Good for you. Good ear. Yes, the names for some of the other evolutions of the Stargate project prior to becoming Stargate that I left out are Project Sunstreak, Dragoon Absorb, and Centerlane. It just... These, they were just different evolutions of the same, all leading to the same place. And some of them were quite short, like like two weeks long short. And I didn't quite understand the subtleties of some of them enough to explain here. So there you go. All right. Before we close it, because I mentioned it in part one and said I would talk about it later. I got to get it in somewhere. This is it. Somewhere is now. Noise versus signal. It's a big, big problem in remote viewing. Noise is the egoic mind. It's the imaginative part of your mind. It's the one that has all the ideas, that puts the puzzle together for you day after day. It is the voice that never shuts up. Why is that a problem for remote viewing? Don't you need to piece together what you're seeing? I know that would be the inclination and seem like the most logical thing to do, but no, you actually don't. Simpler is better at least to start out. No, what you want is to be picking up on the signal that your mind is receiving. The imagery and sounds and smells and feelings that aren't coming from inside of you because they're coming from over there, out there. And in a report describing what they were finding during Grill Flame, I've linked it below, Their instructions to analysts of the sessions were to assess it overall to start out, that while formulating their judgments concerning the data, to understand that it was likely to consist of both a mixture of correct and incorrect elements. Because, once again, noise during remote viewing is a big, big problem. It gets in no matter how good you are. But the analysts were to keep in mind that a good rule of thumb was that the more descriptive elements were generally going to have higher reliability than any judgments or specific labels as to what the viewer was describing. So it was recommended to approach their first examination of the data overall to try to obtain the flavor of the response, reserving immediate judgment even in the face of what seemed to be certain errors before going back through for a final detailed analysis which was why Ingo Swan's six-stage protocol was so important. It helped to simplify and direct the process for the viewers to describe and not immediately label. The procedure focused on improving the reliability of remote viewing by controlling factors that tended to introduce noise, such as imaginative overlays or what was coming from the viewer's own brain, environmental overlays such as the room that the viewing was actually taking place in, and interview overlay. So, a much better approach to use the same or same number of interviewers over and over rather than continue to add someone new to the mix. And this process gives the viewer's information a way to evolve without the ego and imagination coming in to ruin it all right at the start. I heard and read it multiple times that generally, the more specific information received in sessions, the more likely it was to be noise and not true signal. 
which really speaks to something I have mentioned a couple of times already on this season. Psychic abilities, remote viewing or otherwise, this stuff is subtle. That's not to say that it's not impactful, but you have to be sensitive enough or, or in a mental space where you can pick up on these signals. Subtle. It's not the voice screaming in your head. It's the whispered prodding from the ether. Second thing I want to talk about, because I think it is so cool, personality traits. As with all psychic abilities, anyone can remote view. Anyone can learn how. However, some people are going to be more inclined to have higher talent for it. Some are just going to be naturals. And the program actually did reach a point where they were able to more accurately identify a potentially successful remote viewer based on personality traits. I'm going to read you what they wrote word for word in their report on this. Historically, the search for medical, psychological, personality measures that might provide a quantitative psychic profile has been unsuccessful. Several years of observation by workers in the field has, however, led to an informal guide based on subjective evaluation of the personality traits of successful viewers. This rule of thumb guide is based on the observation that successful remote viewers tend to be confident, outgoing, adventurous, broadly successful individuals with some artistic bent and possessing middle-of-the-road views about psychoenergetic functioning. Neither total skeptics or true believers tend to do well on psychoenergetic tasks. Rather, good remote viewers seem to come from the ranks of generally successful photographers, engineers, mathematicians, artists, and businessmen who have a relaxed interest in the phenomena and are challenged by it. The only addendum I would add to that is that, obviously, soldiers and police officers can make good remote viewers as well, as in the case of Pat Price, Joe McMonigal, and his five co-viewers selected for Grill Flame, but also uh, Ingo Swan, I want to say, had a background in the Army before becoming an artist. Along with these descriptors, McMonagall agrees that since remote viewers are sensitive people, it's not unusual for them to have good drawing capabilities or be artistic in some sense. But very interestingly, and something I haven't heard anywhere else, he adds this interesting observation. Most remote viewers tend to display some level of synesthesia. When you hear music, you see colors. See a color, you taste cigarettes. You smell letters. This is the experiencing of one sense through another. In psychology, it is just crossed wires. But it's weird, right? I used to have this. Story time. It's weird. <laughs> but I'll share. And uh, this is just another strange and unusual Kristen factoid you can add to the already transparent list that I've shared with you over the course of the entire show. I used to think that I hated music because it tasted like metal. How weird is that? It also happened with a few words, too. The music tasting thing died down uh, or went away in my late teens or maybe I, maybe I just stopped noticing it but even to this day I cannot stand listening to Mariah Carey because she was 
the worst and apparently is the worst currently. And I cannot say certain words to this day without them tasting strange. Two that I can think of off the top of my head, they were the biggest offenders growing up, pizza and supper. So friggin' weird, right? That being said, though, I am not a remote viewer, but it's interesting information and caught my attention, of course, because I have personal experience with synesthesia. Uh, I had not ever thought about it in a paranormal context before. So cool. Joe also talked about something that was happening with him that he thinks contributed to why he was ultimately selected for the program. He said that in the military setting, and I'm thinking it could be in any setting where the stakes are high, but he specifically was talking about his own experience in the Army. There are certain people who are considered luckier than others. They don't know why, but these people just seem to always make the right decision always in the right place, right time, and they become notorious for making these right decisions, and others ultimately see this and start to key off of their decisions. They usually follow them. Joe says that he was doing this a lot, and he had always been aware of this gut feeling, always getting this gut feeling. He never told anybody about it, didn't talk about it. He just used it during his time in service. This gut feeling is something that's been on my mind. I shared a story about a gut feeling I had earlier in the season during harvest, and I just want to reiterate on the subtlety of what that felt like. It was like a prodding, a knowing, a a direction given to me to do something that I hadn't originally had any intention to do. uh, it, It was a compulsion, It wasn't a voice screaming in my head. And it's something I wouldn't have noticed if I hadn't been paying attention in the first place. And people have gut feelings all the time, but they conflate the noise with the signal, I think. I'm sure, like me, you have had many gut feelings that you did listen to and nothing happened at all. And then you had gut feelings that you ignored and later maybe wish you hadn't. And it's frustrating because how are you supposed to tell the difference? I will say this. My own observation in almost 40 years on this earth, I am not inherently psychic. I'm not especially talented in this way. But unexplainable psychic phenomena has happened. And when I think back on those events, it was always a subtle feeling or pushing that came from nowhere but I happened to pay attention when I noticed it. It just happened rather than was forced in by my own brain. So my suspicion is that when things have happened infrequently in the past, I was hitting upon this signal totally by accident. Where naturally sensitive people having an easier time with it is not some innate superpower or anything. They can simply decipher more easily how it feels to receive information out of nowhere, not inspired by their own thoughts or anything they are doing or looking at in the moment compared to the regular noise of their own ego. The final thing I want to touch on has to do with something I didn't expound on, but does play a role in the psychic ability of remote viewing, and that is precognition and retrocognition. 
seeing the future, seeing the past. We talked about precognition. Pat Price did both in his viewings. In one outbounder test in particular, they sent his beacon person to Rinconada Park in Palo Alto by the swimming pool. Price started viewing and starts sketching what he's seeing. He drew the pool, a building next to it, trees, a road, spot on. And then he sketched a very large, very tall water tower with tanks. When he was done, he said he thought it was a water purification plant. Well, that wasn't right. Huge miss. But how could he get so much of this location correct and then add this incredibly out-of-place structure to it? I mean, if he was seeing it, he was seeing it. So why was he wrong? For the rest of the Stargate program, long after Pat had died, everyone assumed this viewing to be a miss. However, in 1995, Russell Targ received a copy of a Centennial Annual Report for Palo Alto. As he's flipping through the pages, he comes across a very interesting photo of Rinconada Park from 1913. However, at that time, it wasn't called Rinconada Park. The park wouldn't be established until 1922. No, in 1913, it was the old municipal waterworks containing a water tower that was one of the tallest structures in the area. Pat retrocognitively remote-viewed something that once upon a time had been located right where he drew it, but at the time of his viewing hadn't existed for 60 years. On a TED Talk with Russell Targ, he described remote viewing as seeing something that's happening at a distance or something happening at a different time. He said the ability to see something 6,000 miles away is no harder than seeing something hidden right in front of you, and seeing things far into the future is no harder than seeing a contemporaneous event. Says it's because remote viewing, much like any other extrasensory perception, is non-local perception. It's a way of perceiving information just like you normally would, but is not dependent on the locality of space and time. Leave it to a physicist to bring non-locality into this. Our reality is built on locality. But when we're considering things like whether ESP is real, we're talking about something else entirely. It depends on concepts like non-locality. It depends on concepts like quantum entanglement, which is real and has been demonstrated. The math checks out. Quantum physics is characterized by non-locality. And because of this, understanding that two quantum particles, despite their distance from each other, can have a corroborating simultaneous effect on each other can help to explain non-local perception, non-local connection, accessing information at faster than the speed of light, because it's already accessed. It's already there. We don't know how, just like physicists don't know how the particles do it, but particles gonna particle. And though physics generally accepts the occurrence of quantum entanglement, accepts that it's been demonstrated that the math checks out, physicists have no consensus as to what this means for the nature of reality. It's a real paradox having to accept that something that can't possibly be true, that makes no sense in the safe little scope of our logic, still exists whether you like it or not. I hope I did this subject justice. Told you it was a big one. Far too big for the one-person research operation out of Paranorm Girl Industries, but 
I do wonder the effect that diving into the skeptical side of things is going to have on my newfound understanding and opinions about these extrasensory abilities. Because I gotta say, the hits, the anecdotal stories, the proof, and the American government's damned obsession with this stuff for 23 years straight has me convinced. We always include the skeptical side on these subjects. Every angle has a place at this table, so we will withhold judgment for now. That is going to wrap our two-part episode on remote viewing and the Stargate program. Thank you for tuning in today. Our conclusion episode is quickly approaching. I've received some really good suggestions already for the new topic, but I want more, more. Like I said, I ain't psychic. You gotta tell me. Send those suggestions to paranormgirlpod at gmail.com or hit me up on the socials at paranormgirlpod or just reach out to say hi. That's so nice too. All for now, folks, it is time for your final note. Russell Targ's TED Talk was so good, you guys. I recommend a lot of things, and I recommend this as well. I heard TED Talk actually banned it for a second. I think that says something. Even now, people and respected organizations don't want to be associated with this stuff. But why? Because Robert Gates' final words on the matter still sit proudly pronounced on a lot of the online literature out there about it. And that kind of stuck. Nobody wants to read the research. They just want the highlights. Give me the headlines. That's enough for them. Why look any deeper if that headline is, there's nothing worth looking at here, and is from the director of the CIA himself? I mean, he's got to know better, right? Doesn't matter that he was skeptical from the start and never had any intention of taking the Stargate contract back into the fold of the CIA. He was determined not to. And I just don't understand it. When the proof is there. Hell, when the proof is overwhelming. And look, I know I did not include the long list of misses in this episode. I am well aware there were misses. But isn't it something that when a real scientific effort to study and research a paranormal subject came up with not nothing, as so many expect something like this would, but rather came up with an overwhelming amount of something? If they had surfaced from the program with zero to show for it, even just an amount that would support lucky guessing, just chance, that would absolutely be one thing. But the testing, the sessions, the operational missions, when successful, consistently came back with a much higher than chance probability. Higher than chance. Consistently enough that they continued to receive funding and a green light to push forward. Jessica Utz, who is a professor and statistician who was appointed to a panel at the end of the program to help review the data, said that she originally came into the project skeptically. She's a statistician, a mathematician, an analytical type, so unsurprising she was skeptical. But she says she was convinced by the accumulating evidence and good science and tight controls in the experiments that had taken place. She had a lot of time prior to the writing of this report to see the program and what they were doing in action. She got to see a lot of what was going on in comparison to her co-reviewer, Ray Hyman. She witnessed the birth. Hyman just saw the baby, so to speak. 
In her final report, she claimed the results were evidence of psychic functioning. Hyman claimed her findings were premature and the results and testing had not been independently replicated. Speaking as a statistician, Jessica said that she had consulted on numerous other areas of scientific research and that the methodologies and controls being used in the Stargate experiments were much tighter than the experiments she had personally seen taking place in other areas of the scientific arena. But it had been he said, she said, they said, we said for 23 years at that point. What if all we were to consider was proof and effect size of remote viewing? Proof is evidence of something that is so strong it's statistically unreasonable to deny it. You pile up so much evidence that it's unreasonable to deny it. Effect size measures mathematically the magnitude of an experiment. So it takes out the necessity to run the same experiment millions of times by asking how powerful is the experiment. An effect size in this argument does not just ask are people remote viewing and does it work? It asks the probable success rate of those remote viewings that did take place. The example in Targ's TED Talk is the effect size of aspirin. It's not just the statistical significance of does the aspirin affect people, but how much does it affect people? How effective is it? The larger the effect, the more effective it is. People are taking aspirin. Aspirin works. How effective is it? Its ES is 0.06, which is fine. A lot of medical research ranges in effect sizes from 0.05 and up. When they were originally running the trials with aspirin, they stopped the experiment with it because the effect size became big enough. It was apparent that it was working. In 1978, at the beginning of Girl Flame, Targ had the six chosen intelligence officers remote view 36 outdoor targets, six apiece. A chance probability of at least six would come back accurate. Out of the 36 targets, 19 came back as successful hits. This experiment had an effect size of 0.67, a little higher than aspirin. Pat Price, when run through another experiment, was asked to remote view nine different outdoor locations. His accuracy came back with an effect size of 1.3, quite a bit higher. And Hella Hamid, also asked to remote view nine different locations, her effect size came back at 1.5, also quite a bit higher. The variables are vastly different, I know. We're comparing apples and oranges here when we compare a paranormal ability highly effective in a smaller pool to a medicine less effective but in a much larger pool. I cannot claim to understand this stuff. I was and still am terrible with math. This is just math that has already been done for me. My thinking by including it is if you cannot take the stories, the experiments conducted, the time spent, the money spent, the government involvement, the oversight, and the investigations that occurred into consideration on whether or not there might be something more to remote viewing, maybe you'll take the math more to heart. And if this math cannot be taken seriously, someone thinks it's bogus or there is fault with it, 
then I think we should consider doing another large-scale investigation into psychoenergetics and psychic functioning and come up with some new numbers, some that will sit at a lower, comfortable level, more in line with what we expect them to be. Because until then, remote viewing as it stands does and will continue to have an effect size 10 times greater than that of a bottle of pills currently sitting in your bathroom cabinet. That's it. That's all I got. My stab at Stargate. Thank you once again for humoring me and my curiosity. Like I mentioned, we'll be taking a look at the skeptical side to psychic and mediumistic abilities not too long from now. Reviewing the other side of the argument is so important to any conclusion, and these skeptical episodes are always so illuminating, so stay tuned for that. We'll see you back here next week, though, for another fascinating conversation, this time with paranormal historian and the author of Researching the Paranormal and the Encyclopedia of Parapsychology. My guest is Courtney. Block, and I cannot wait. Have a great week and stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.